If you haven't already, feel free to turn to Mark chapter 12. We're in verses 1 through 12, as Andy just read for us. And if you have a Bible, that's in the New Testament. So it would be about three-fourths of the way through your Bible. You'll find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to be in Mark, and we're going to be in chapter 12. Now, I work outside of the church, and I have had several jobs throughout my working career. And each time I get to start a new job, there's a sense of excitement. And many of you have probably experienced this, where you have a new job on the horizon, or you get a new job, and you're excited for this new vocation that you're going to be partaking in. And it's very exciting to think about what you're going to be doing, but oftentimes on that first day, it's not quite as exciting as what it otherwise would have been because you're filling out a lot of paperwork, filling out I-9s, getting your check deposit information all in there, being given an employee handbook, and all that is for a good purpose. They want to make sure that expectations are clear. If you need to take PTO off or if you need to take time off, here's how you take PTO. If you are curious about when we start, the office hours tend to be 8 to 5 or 9 to 5, however it works. They want to set expectations ahead of time. And so that excitement that you have, it might be simmered a little bit with all the paperwork that you have to, to go through and things that need to be presented to you. But it's important. I don't think anybody would deny that it's important because if it's not presented, then there could lead to some frustration down the road as an employee there. So the company, your managers, your employer is trying to set the expectations so that you as the employee can do a great job. So that there's a, a good mutual relationship there. And this morning, one of the primary themes that we're going to be seeing is that as things are revealed, when a company reveals what their expectations are, when God reveals what his expectations are, there's accountability. So as revelation takes place, there's a higher sense of accountability. And the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is that if God has, in fact, revealed himself, then what are his expectations? If he has revealed who he is, then it's always for a purpose. And so what is the expectation that God has? What does he expect of us? And so because he has revealed himself, he expects his people to bear fruit, to walk in righteousness, to obey him. There are various ways of saying the same thing. And the theme that we're going to be really driving into is that the fruit, talk about how God expects fruit from his people, the fruit that God requires comes through submitting to his authoritative and revealed word. The fruit that God requires comes through submitting to his authoritative and revealed word. And so we have been going through Mark. If you're new, thank you for being with us. We have been marching through the book of Mark, passage by passage. What we're trying to do is let the text reveal itself and we are, have found ourselves recently in Mark chapter 11, and today we're in Mark chapter 12. But previously, the first 11 verses of Mark, we saw Jesus as king. It was the triumphal entry. He's coming into Jerusalem, and he was fulfilling prophecies from Zechariah 9.9. But what was happening was that Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy that there would be a coming king. And so he comes in riding on a donkey. And then we see in verses 12 through 26 of Mark 11 that Jesus is priest. We saw there's a barren fig tree representing Israel. There's a barren temple. And now Jesus, contradicting what was going on with the priest in the temple, is now the greater priest, the one who brings about fruit. And he shares with us how to bring about fruit. And he says, have faith in God. So we see Jesus as king. We see Jesus as priest. And last week, Trent Jones from Linworth Baptist Church did a tremendous job preaching on the authority of Jesus. He talked about how Jesus' authority is the primary authority that we need to submit to. There is no greater authority. Now, this morning, we've seen Jesus as king, Jesus as priest. We've seen his authority. We now see Jesus as prophet. So we know Christ to be the greater prophet, priest, and king. In the past chapter and a half, this has been made very explicit as Jesus comes to the end of his ministry. He's making his teaching more and more explicit. Now, a prophet 
just for some clarification before we get going, a prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God. A prophet speaks on behalf of God. A prophet reveals God's word to others. And so what is it that Jesus is revealing? He's revealing who God is. He's revealing what God expects from his people. And he's also revealing what God will do. And we see this primarily in the three points that you'll find in your bulletin. God's design for his vineyard, God's design for his people, and God's design for judgment. So with those three points in mind, I will pray, and then we will go into that first one. Father, we come before you grateful. Grateful that we get to gather as a gospel church. Help us to see the gospel clearly. Help us to see how you have revealed yourself in your word. And God, help us to submit to your authority as the greater prophet, the greater priest, and the greater king. We pray that if there are distractions among us that you would clear our minds. Pray that where I am unclear, that Holy Spirit, you would provide clarity. God, we pray for other churches that are preaching this gospel alongside us. Thank you for other churches. Thank you that we are not the only ones with it. But Lord, in particular, we want to lift up Salt and Light Church this morning down in Columbus. God, we ask for wisdom as they go through transition. And we also ask that as they go through transition, they would be a beacon of, of those who have their hope in Christ, trusting you to lead. We pray for Westwood Alliance Church in Mansfield. Lord, thank you for their faithful presentation of the gospel. Thank you for the fruit that they have seen. Thank you for how consistent they have been throughout the years. Lord, we ask for your blessing on them. And God, we thank you for Grace Fellowship Church just right here in Westerville, just right down the road. God, we ask that they would continue to preach the gospel and that you would bless them with fruit, that you would bless them with more of yourself. Thank you for these brothers and sisters. Thank you that we are not alone. Thank you that we get to come alongside and preach the same gospel. We ask that that would be made clear this morning as we go through this passage. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So our first point, God's design for his vineyard. So Jesus is teaching a parable. So Jesus has taught explicitly, he's taught implicitly, and one of the primary ways that he teaches is through parables. You'll see this all throughout the Gospels, but especially in Matthew and Luke. Mark has less parables, but nonetheless, he still does have parables, and we come to one this morning. Now, parables are used to teach about God. Jesus was always teaching about God. That was his primary ministry. He was always clarifying doctrine because there were distortions by the Jewish leaders. He's always saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. He's clarifying. They've received God's words and they've distorted them. And so Jesus is consistently trying to correct doctrine. He wants people to know who God is. That's the primary reason why he, he came. He's God in the flesh. He's the clearest depiction of God that we could ever have. Jesus is God's self-revelation to us. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And so as we get into this, you'll notice that this passage is similar to the one with the fig tree in the temple. In fact, Sinclair Ferguson talking about this, he says the parable of the vineyard was in fact the spoken form of the parable of the fig tree in the previous chapter. It's the spoken form of the parable of the fig tree in the previous chapter. We see very similar themes in this passage as we saw with the fig tree and the temple, but there is a slight variation. This passage, whereas the fig tree and the temple were pointing primarily to just the people of God in general, this passage is an indictment against their, their leaders. And so we, we looked at that vineyard. We saw that the primary indictment was against the tenants that it was leased out to. And so vineyard, that term throughout Scripture is often used to refer to Israel, to refer to God's people. We see this primarily in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. I'm not going to read all 7, but I will uh, read verse 7 which says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts 
is the house of Israel. If you have your Bible later, I would just read Isaiah chapter 5, those first seven verses. It's almost a parallel passage to what we're seeing. It's foretold. And so vineyard is a, it's a garden of grapes, right? And it was very popular in Israel, all throughout the Palestinian hills. There were vineyards all over the place. And so it was not uncommon to talk about vineyards. It was not uncommon to know the industry of wine in that day. And Jesus is very familiar with it. He talks about, when he's, when he's referring to this vineyard, he talks about putting up a fence around it. He talks about having a uh, pit for the wine press so that all the <coughs> fruit that is gathered can then create wine. He talks about a tower. And he talks about it being leased to tenants. So this, these towers were built so that someone could keep watch, make sure nobody's getting in, whether that's animals, whether that's people. Also, the... the um, leasing to the tenants was common practice. That wasn't an uncommon thing when it comes to these vineyards because they're all over the place. There would be owners who had multiple vineyards. They can't, they can't farm all of them. And so what would happen is they would, they would lease them out. And the tenants would get a good amount of the fruit, but they would also owe some to the owner. That would be their rent. That would be the debt that the owner would collect. And so when the season came, Jesus talks about when the season came, for the owner to receive fruit from the garden, he's coming around, he's collecting the, the rent. He's coming around collecting the debt from those whom he put in charge of his vineyard. Clear expectations, just like when you start a job, there's clear expectations with an employee handbook. The owner of the vineyard, there's clear expectations, we're gonna put you in charge. And when the season comes, I'm going to come and, and collect rent. Come and collect the debt that you owe me. And the managers are expected to cultivate that fruit. And so as we, look, as we look at this, as we look at this parable of a vineyard with the expectation that it would produce fruit, and an owner with the expectation that he would come around and receive the rent, we asked before this sermon began, what is it that God expects of us? We said that, it's that we would produce fruit. And so we see vineyard, we talked about how vineyard is indicative of the people of God throughout redemptive history. And so we see God's design for his vineyard is that it would bring forth fruit. He has put managers and he has put people in charge of that vineyard and they are to aid in bringing forth that fruit. God expects this from his people. Now, that's just kind of like a, a vague thing to say that God expects fruit, right? So what is it? It's, it's walking in righteousness and it's fighting sin. Walking in righteousness and, and fighting sin. There's a pervasive and destructive idea that has made its way into churches, and you may see hints of it from time to time, that you can have Jesus as your Savior and not as your Lord. You can have him as the one who saves you, but you don't have to submit to him as king. I want to share with you that that is destructively false. Fighting sin is not optional. And that thought has been attacked, rightfully so. When we see something that's false, see something that's dangerous, we want to address it. And that has been. Churches, especially ones that run in our stream, have addressed this very, very consistently, which is encouraging something that is a slight variation of it that even our congregation would be more um, accustomed to potentially seeing is that fighting certain sin is not or is optional. As long as I have this right over here, God is not terribly concerned about this over here. Whatever that is, you can, you can put all kinds of different things in those categories. So you might say God isn't concerned about that sin or he's, he's more concerned about other things as if he has a certain capacity to only care about a certain amount of things. He certainly couldn't care about all of this because he can only carry so much. I'd say, no, God, God is concerned. God is interested in every aspect of our lives bearing fruit. If we are in God's vineyard, if we are God's people, he's concerned about every aspect of our lives bringing forth fruit. We see this in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink, little small things, God's not concerned about what I eat. God's not concerned about what I drink. Whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, 
do all to the glory of God. So Christian, we exist to glorify God. We exist to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says. And it is impossible to do that if we are not fighting sin. It's impossible to glorify God if we don't fight sin. It's impossible to glorify God, or it's impossible to enjoy Him if we are not fighting sin. We are called to fight sin. So are we fighting sin? Are we fighting sin when no one can see? Are we fighting sin when we're at work? When there's temptation to cut a corner, no one would know. It's, it's accepted in our industry. Are we fighting sin when nobody is looking? Are we fighting even the small sins, even the things that the world may look at and say, wow, you, are, you must be some kind of righteous guy if you're concerned about that. Are we fighting even the things that the world would look at and say, that's not that important? Are we fighting even small sins? Are we fighting sins that we don't even think should be sins? There's all, all kinds of times when I feel like, man, like, the Scripture's concerned about this. Man, like, I feel like this isn't harming anybody. I feel like this isn't hurting anybody. Why, why, is, why, why is God concerned about that? Are we fighting even those sins, the sins that we don't think should be sins, sins that go contrary to what our flesh says? So as the people of God, as those who are in his vineyard, we are expected to bring forth fruit. Parents, this is a great opportunity for you to consider your home. Your home is a vineyard. You have yourselves and you have, if you have children, this is an opportunity for you to recognize how you can work to bring forth fruit in your home. Men, lead. Lead in that charge. Work diligently for fruit. Check in with your spouse. Check in with your children. Women, cultivate that. When you see good things, dig into it. Say, this is good. Let's get more of this. Help. Come alongside. Parents, your home is a, a vineyard. And then if you're not a Christian this morning, super glad that you're here. Hope you continue to come and, and hear. You are always welcome. But if someone were to ask you what the purpose of your life is, we just went over the purpose of a life of a Christian is that we would glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If someone were to ask you, what is the purpose of your life? Would you have a satisfactory response? If someone were to ask that, would there be a satisfactory response? And if not, then perhaps that is not your true purpose. Perhaps you were created for something greater. I would encourage you this morning to consider what is your purpose. And so we see God's design for his vineyard is that it would bring forth fruit. Now, how will his vineyard bring forth fruit? We've talked a little bit about that, but now we're going to unpack it even more because the answer is found in God's design for his people. Look with me in verse 3. I'm going to read verses 3 through 8 again. And they took him, the servant that was sent to the tenants, and beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, to master, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. This master has been sending servants. He sends servants to the tenants. And these servants are representing the master. They go on behalf of the master, bringing the master's words to the vineyard and to those who are in charge of the vineyard. And these servants, it's... Um, clear in this passage that these servants are representative of the prophets in the Old Testament. So as Jesus is talking about these servants, we should be thinking of the prophets that we've consistently read about in the Old Testament. God has sent his people to the, the Jewish leaders. He sent his prophets and they were treated shamefully. They were killed. They were beaten. They were despised. And yet he continues to send prophet after prophet after prophet. 
so that they would understand who God is and so that they would be able to receive God's words and live faithfully in light of them. Notice just how patient the master is. His people are not bearing fruit. His people have rebelled against him. Yet he continues to send prophet after prophet, servant after servant to his people because he is loving toward them. He cares deeply about them. He wants to see them turn. So he continues to send his servants, and his servants are continuously mistreated. We see the passage, it gets increasingly worse. The first one was beaten. The second one was struck on the head. The King James says that he was stoned, and the third was killed. And then after that, it's a variation of being beaten and and being killed. But then we come to a beloved son. It's clear in this passage that the beloved son is representative of Jesus. Jesus, the beloved son. We've heard that um, terminology before, even in this book. Mark, at Jesus' baptism, Mark 1.11. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And then we see it again in the transfiguration, Mark 9, verse 7, where we read, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So we've already seen just in this book even two other times where Jesus is identified as the beloved son. And as Jesus is telling this parable, he's saying the way that you treat the beloved son reflects your attitude toward the one sending him. And so he has said that this beloved son is sent to these tenants and the master, the father, says surely they'll listen to him. Surely they'll respect him. He, more than anyone else, represents me. He, more than anyone else, has a legal right to speak on my behalf. And the tenants, rather than hearing his words, they kill him. They they get greedy. They say, oh, this is an opportunity. This is the last guy. The the field isn't going to any of the servants. They're gone. It comes down to the son. He's the heir. If we get rid of him, then we, this, this field, this vineyard can be ours. We can keep it. And so they get greedy, and they say, come, let us kill him. Rather than receiving his words, they say, come, let us kill him. Again, another phrase that might sound familiar. See this in in Genesis, when it comes to Joseph and his brothers. Joseph's father loved him more than any of his other brothers, and so they had an opportunity where they were away from the father, all of them, and they said, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Jesus, being told, come, let us kill him. Joseph foreshadowed this event. Now, Joseph was not killed, but those responsible for overseeing God's vineyard, it's a clear message here that they have failed. They have failed. Rather than receive, obey, and present God's word to his people, they have rebelled. They have rejected them. This passage is an indictment, again, on the leaders, on the leaders of his vineyard. Because they've rejected the prophets, they have hindered God's people from bearing fruit. Now, these these Jewish leaders are gatekeepers, so to speak. Some of you are in business, some of you are even in sales, and so you recognize what it means to deal with gatekeepers. You're trying to talk to the person at a certain company that is the most important person for you to talk to, but there's somebody in the middle. There's a gatekeeper. You've got to get past the gatekeeper. And now these Jewish leaders, they are the gatekeepers, and God has sent them, his people, his servants, bringing his words, and the gatekeepers have kept the gate closed. And so his people, his vineyard, is not producing the fruit that it's meant to produce, that it's designed to produce. And the ones ultimately at fault are the gatekeepers, the Jewish leaders. God's design for how his people bear fruit is that they would present the master's word to one another, just like the servants presenting the word to one another. And here's where the breakdown is. Next, his design is that his people would receive the word. And then that they would obey it. God's word was presented by faithful servants, but it was not received. And because it was not received, it was not obeyed. Now we, very much so, like 
the tenants, we do not naturally receive God's word. We are naturally rebellious. We are naturally against him. It's a repercussion of the fall. So our natural heart inclination is not toward, yes, God, I'm willing to do whatever you say. It's why, God? Why why should I do it this way? Why is this something that you're concerned about? Our pride gets in the way. Submitting to God's word isn't easy because it implies that we don't agree. And even as we try to walk faithfully with the Lord, if you're a Christian, there are times where it feels like you don't agree. And that's not a comfortable feeling. Tim Keller, in commenting on this, he says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. So to bear fruit, we must receive God's words. We must present God's words, and we must obey God's words. And the primary way that we do that is by being attached to the vine. So it's funny that Israel and God's people throughout the course of redemptive history is known as a vineyard. And then Jesus in John 15, 5, presents himself as the true vine. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So in order for us to bear the kind of fruit that God has designed for us to bear, we must abide in the true vine, the one in whom gives us the ability to obey. So Christian, this morning, as we read about these servants that were sent, I want to encourage you, be a faithful servant. Be a faithful servant, even if that means rejection. Share the master's words. Go where the master sends you. You have been uniquely placed in unique situations so that you would be able to bring the gospel into those areas. No one else is in the area that you're in. You've been uniquely placed there to bring the gospel forth. Do so, even if that means rejection, even if that means financial loss, even if that means damaged reputation or death, like these faithful servants experienced. Also, Christian, on the flip side of that, are there other servants that have come to you that you, in your response, have, quote-unquote, beaten or treated shamefully, whether that's publicly to them or that's privately behind closed doors? Are there servants who have come to you, who have tried to faithfully bring God's word to you that you have beaten or treated shamefully? The way that God has designed his church to flourish is that we would bring God's word to one another. None of us has a perfect memory. None of us has a perfect resume. And so we need one another to say, brother, this is an area of concern. Brother, turn around. Sister, turn around. Don't continue to pursue this. We have a responsibility to take that to them. And if someone comes to us, we have a responsibility to receive it. Trent Jones had a wonderful quote in his sermon last week. He said, do you have the kind of relationships where people can confront you with sin? And then he followed it up. He said, and do you have the kind of relationships where you would welcome it? It's one thing to be confronted with it. It's another thing to to welcome it, knowing that it's for your good. And again, non-Christian, if you're in the room, I would ask, have you considered God's kindness to you in sending you his servants? Has there been someone who has shared the gospel with you? At the very least, you'll hear the gospel this morning. Have there been those that God has kindly sent to you that you have continued to reject? Consider God's kindness. Consider his patience in sending you even one person, but let alone maybe it's been multiple. Consider his kindness. Consider his patience. How many servants have you rejected? How many servants will you reject? God's design for his vineyard is that it would bring forth fruit. We saw that in the first point. Here in the second point, we've seen that God's design for his people is that they would bear fruit by presenting, receiving, and submitting We're obeying the master's words. And now, for those who refuse to do so, we're presented with the third point. We see God's design for judgment. So we see verses 9 through 12 here. We don't have to read those right now. But just starting off, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will. He will. This, whatever comes next, is sure. We see that God's judgment is 
Guaranteed. It's sure. It's going to happen. He will come and destroy. He will give the vineyard to others. When it comes to come and destroy, he's going to remove those that he had previously placed in charge of his people. He's going to bring a better one. When it comes to giving his vineyard to others, we see this where salvation was for the Jews. But now, Gentiles have been brought in. He initially entrusted his words to his physical people, Israel, and they failed. And so now others come in. Others come in. We see this in Acts 28, 28, where Paul, this is at the end of Acts, Paul is indicting the Jewish leaders. And it says that after he said this, they all dispersed. So it's kind of a mic drop moment. But Paul says, therefore, let it be known to you, you Jewish leaders, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. And here's the reason that he gives. They will listen. God has given us his words. We are called to listen. We are called to hear his words, to receive them, to share them, and to obey them. And then we see that another aspect of God's judgment is that it's based on how we respond to Christ, how we respond to the beloved Son. See, the Master sending his beloved Son, representative of Christ. Christ, the beloved Son, has been sent to the world. And the stone we see here, the stone that the builders have rejected, this is indicative of Psalm 118. It talks about building the temple. There's a stone that the builders rejected, says this doesn't fit, so they cast it off. That stone has become the cornerstone. It's become the most important stone. That's the one that everything else is dependent on. It keeps everything together. The most important stone in the whole structure was the one that the original builders cast off. God's judgment is based on how we respond to this cornerstone. We're going to receive him as the the Lord, the master, the savior that he claims to be, or we're going to cast him off and say he was just someone who spouted off maybe some good things, maybe some things that we didn't agree with. He was a good guy, but he wasn't who he said he was. How will we respond to the cornerstone being sent to us. If we reject the cornerstone, it will lead to our destruction. Similar to um, if you're doing, ever done some home remodeling. We've had to do a lot in our home. It's a fixer-upper for sure. And if you've been in that space, you have heard the term load-bearing wall. So maybe you've had a desire to remove a wall. And removing a load-bearing wall is a terrible idea. You can look up videos of homes just collapsing because the wall that was meant to hold some of the weight was removed because they thought it might open up the space, have a nice open concept, and it ended up destroying the whole house. (laughs) The way that we respond to the cornerstone is like how we respond to a load-bearing wall. If you reject it, destruction will come. It will come. It's sure. It's guaranteed. But if we receive it, then there is security. But also we see in verse 11, that this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. God's judgment is not only sure, but it's also marvelous. It's marvelous because, for at least one reason here, it's marvelous because it's paradoxical in nature. Notice that it was the religious leaders that Jesus is talking to. It's these people that you would expect who would have the answers, who would recognize who God is, who would receive God's word because they put on this show of saying, we take God's word so seriously. And what Jesus is pointing out is that they've rejected the most important thing about God's word is recognizing who God is. The Jewish leaders sought righteousness with great fervency. We talk about abiding in the vine, we talk about bearing fruit, walking in righteousness, all that is tremendous. And yes and amen, we want to encourage the people here in this church to pursue righteousness fervently. The difference is that these Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, they pursued it within themselves. This passage that I'm getting ready to read is so important in understanding this and understanding what is happening here. Romans 9, 
verses 30 through 33. You're welcome to turn there, but I'll start reading. We read this about what is happening with the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul says, what shall we say then? What shall we say? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. So before we go any further, he's saying, look, the Gentiles who were not pursuing righteousness attained it. And then Israel, who was pursuing a law that would lead to righteousness, they didn't attain it. And then he asks the question in verse 32, why? He gives this answer, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The reason why the Gentiles received righteousness is because they received it by faith. The reason why the Jewish people, the reason why Israel did not is because they pursued righteousness apart from faith. They they pursued it as if it were based on works. If If I do enough, then I will be received. The stumbling stone, this rock of offense, is the idea of salvation by faith alone apart from your works. Don't hear me wrong. We are not against works. James says that apart from them, your faith is dead. Works are important, but they are not what saves you. They are the fruit. If you have been saved, there is fruit. If you are in the vineyard, you'll bear forth fruit. Works are important, but they are not what saves. This stumbling stone, this rock of offense, if you read those four verses in Romans 9, verses 33 through 33, or 30 through 33, you will see this stumbling block is the fact that it was salvation by faith alone. And then we see in verse 12, we see that the response of the Jewish leaders, they recognize that this parable was told about them. And John MacArthur helpfully points out that them recognize that, them recognizing that only arouses their hatred and not their repentance. They go away. They refuse to listen. God's words were presented to them, and they turn away. It only arouses their hatred and not their repentance. So God's judgment will come, and it's coming on those who reject the cornerstone, those who reject salvation by faith alone. God's judgment is coming, but yet how kind and patient it is of God to send servant after servant. He has sent the prophets, he has sent the apostles, and ultimately he has sent Christ. How merciful of God to withhold his judgment as long as he has. None of us are deserving of the grace and mercy that God has already shown us in not bringing about judgment today. Praise God for that. And how gracious of God to continue to put breath into the lungs of those who are actively rejecting him. Those who are actively rebelling against him. We do not deserve to have any form of life. We have rejected the one who is life, and yet he continues to sustain us. How kind. But that, brothers and sisters, I would not bank on that. That is not going to last forever. Judgment is coming for those who reject Christ. God's judgment will be marvelous. It'll be paradoxical. And then additionally, why it'll be marvelous is because his justice will be put on full display. Every wrong that we see in society, every wrong that we've seen throughout the course of human history will be made right. No one gets away with injustice. It does not happen. If Christ is in fact returning, he will address every single act of rebellion. But then also God's grace and mercy will be put on display. That's another reason why his judgment will be marvelous great word to describe this. It'll be displayed to those who receive him. David pointed out that he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He has taken our sin, and we have received his righteousness if we receive Christ. What a marvelous thing. Christian, don't respond like the failed leaders. Don't respond by rejecting God's words. 
Don't hear God's words and then go away. Don't try to find ways to get around it. Find security in Christ crucified and the one who became sin for us so that we might receive his righteousness. Then again, if you have heard me addressing Christians and say I'm not quite there, I would ask, is your response like that of the Jewish leaders? Is this parable about you? Have there been those who have brought the good news to you that you are continuing to resist? Is this parable about you? Have you heard Jesus' words only to go away? One commentary said this about what's going on. It says, The new Israel will accept the Son as the rightful messenger, heir, and cornerstone of the Messianic kingdom. The rightful messenger, the one who goes and brings the words, the rightful heir, the one who really owns the whole vineyard, and the rightful cornerstone. Jesus is the messenger who came declaring God's words to his people. Jesus is the heir who deserves all the riches of the kingdom. And Jesus is the cornerstone whom the whole structure is made secure. And so therefore, if you are in Christ, you are secure. If you are in Christ, you receive the riches of the inheritance that the heir receives. You are seen as righteous. He requires fruit. God requires fruit from his people, from his vineyard. The bad news is, is that we do not produce that fruit. Naturally, apart from Christ, that does not happen. We have failed, but God has revealed himself. Consider, just even as you go about today, consider the ways that God has revealed himself. Scripture talks about how the heavens declare the glory of God. You look up at the night sky, see all of the billions of stars. God has revealed himself. When you look at a tree, the deep roots that are throughout the ground, the the branches that bring forth life, the animals that find their home in it, just in one tree, you see all that's going on there. God has revealed himself even in nature, but then even more so, he has revealed himself in the prophets. He's revealed himself in the apostles, and he has revealed himself in Christ. We have rebelled. However, the word of God has come to us. And I don't just mean God's words. I mean the word made flesh. He has come and he has dwelt among us. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he became flesh and dwelt among us. God's words became, got flesh on them and dwelt among us. And he's made his expectations clear, but we have failed. But the good news is that Jesus, the word made flesh, has not failed. He, being the perfect Israelite, the true Israel, he lived a perfectly righteous life. So that anyone who would call on his name would receive that perfect righteousness. The fruit that God requires comes through submitting to his authoritative and revealed word. And I mean that in the sense of words in scripture. But I also mean that in the words that scripture points to. The word made flesh, Christ are we submitting to the authoritative and revealed word, Jesus Christ? Receive God this morning as he has revealed himself through the prophets and the apostles and also through Christ. Share God's words with one another. Don't reject God's words. Don't reject those who bring God's words to you. There's always two responses when God's words are presented. We can either receive them, repent and turn to God, or we can harden our hearts and attempt to be rid of him in the same way that these Jewish leaders did. Sinclair Ferguson, in commenting on this, says that God continues to send servants to us to remind us of our debt to him. In a multitude of ways, he reminds us that he looks for the fruit of grace in our lives. His servants may be preachers and teachers of his word. They may be those who remind us personally that we are to live for Christ. They may be the joys and sorrows of life, which encourage us to seek our only ultimate joy and strength in God and his grace. The question this morning is, how do you respond to the messengers God sends? 
Do you welcome them or do you seek to silence the voice of God in them? God is sending you reminders of who he is. As we see this throughout redemptive history, we see God's design for his garden. It started in a garden. We see God's people are first identified in a garden and they rebel. And then he chooses a nation, Israel, and he calls them his vineyard, his garden. And they continue to rebel. And then we see the true Israel, one who is an Israelite, come and he is the only one to perfectly fulfill all of God's commands. He submits to God's authoritative and revealed word perfectly. And then there's a new Israel. So we have garden, Israel, true Israel, then we have a new Israel. All those who receive the true Israel are part of this new Israel. That you are in God's vineyard, not through works, but through faith. And all those who are in the new Israel, the new garden, are being taken to a new and better garden when God creates a new heaven and a new earth. What started in the beginning with the Garden of Eden, as great and wonderful and good as that was, didn't stay there. And yes, there's a lot of destruction and a lot of sadness that comes along that, but it is to bring us to a better garden where God's new creation is going to exalt himself. It's going to make all things right. We were designed to be a part of this garden. Adam in the garden exerted his will and brought forth death. But Jesus in the garden, in the garden of Gethsemane, submitted his will. He said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And he brings forth life. And all those who are in Jesus are now brought to a better garden for eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we come before you grateful, grateful that you continue to show us patience by sending us servants Lord, whether that be preachers, teachers, pastors, whether that be friends, whether that be family members, whether that be life situations, or things that remind us of your words. Thank you. Thank you for giving us your physical word that we can get into nearly any time we want. God, thank you for sending servants. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for not bringing judgment up to this point. And God, we pray that you would help us to bear fruit. And Lord, we do look forward to your coming judgment because we want all sin and all evil and all wickedness to be eradicated. So we look forward to it. We pray that our lives would reflect those who are in the vine that we would bring forth fruit and that we would be a compelling witness to those around us and that that would help bring others into this great vineyard that you have adopted us into. Help us to be reminded that the work is done in Christ, that we do not have to work for it, but that our work is simply evidence of the work that has been done in Jesus. We pray this in his strong name. Amen. And now this morning, we come to the Lord's Supper. And so this, Jesus refers to this as the fruit of the vine. So again, we see that that vineyard imagery. As God's people are gathered around the table, they partake in the fruit of the vine, indicating that they themselves are part of the vineyard. And so this morning, it's a good opportunity for you to examine yourself. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 29 says, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment. On himself. So this morning, before we come to the table, we should ask ourselves, is there unrepentant sin in my life? Is there sin that I have not been fighting against? Is there sin that I have not confessed to God? Now is a good time to confess that to God before we come to the table.
It's also a reminder that this, what we're doing here, it does not save you, but it is to be reminded of the one who has saved us. And so this is for followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus who have already been baptized as believers. So baptism being that first sign that I'm a follower of Jesus and the Lord's Supper being that ongoing perpetual sign that I'm a follower of Jesus. And it's also for those who are in good standing with their local church. If you're visiting with us this morning and you're a part of another church, we welcome you to the table insofar as you are in good standing with your local church that you regularly attend. So 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, we see that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, thank you for these signs. Jesus, thank you for your broken body and your shed blood. Thank you for your righteousness. Thank you for your faithfulness. That despite our rebellion, you and your kindness have lived the righteous life that we needed for life. You have provided the fruit required to be made right with God. And you freely give it to all those who call on your name. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that. We give you praise this morning. Amen.